How many of you like politics? I knew it would just be a, a few of you. How many of you like reading fiction? Okay, a few more. Nonfiction out there? A few more. How many of you like romance? Come on. Oh, Leela, I like it. Two hands up. No wonder you're married to Bill. He's the most romantic man ever. I love it. How many, oh man, I, I could go on and on, but eventually I'd want to have all your hands raised because friends, let me tell you, the book of Esther is a book about so many things. So many things, politics, history, it's got a beautiful tale of romance, it's got intrigue, it's got mystery, it, it reads like a novel. You can, you can read it and, and imagine it as a play, as a drama. You can see the characters unfolding on the stage before you. If you're not interested in Esther, I don't think you're human. So stand with me as we read and begin this brand new series in the book of Esther. Stand with me. The title of this message today, by the way, is Insatiable Xerxes and the Queen's Bluff. Insatiable Xerxes and the Queen's Bluff. The very first message in the book of Esther. Here we go. Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven more days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there, there were white and blue linen, curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. The couches were of gold, silver, on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. They served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigatha, Zethar and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, he commanded them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs, and his anger burned within him. You may be seated. Oh boy, here we go. A little history. 
Those of you who like history, don't worry, we'll get to the romance and all that. History first. Where are we? What is this book of, of Esther? Where, where are we in, uh, in human history? Let's, let's take a look at a few things about this book that makes it very, very unique. The first point is this. Esther is the only biblical book not found at Qumran. Qumran. What's Qumran? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember when there was a large find a number of years ago, decades ago now, a large find of biblical scrolls and manuscripts that were found in Israel in the caves of Qumran. Every single one of the Old Testament books, a manuscript or a fragment or a piece of it, was found in the caves of Qumran except one book, Esther. Very unique Makes you kind of wonder, hmm, why wasn't Esther included? Well, maybe one of the reasons might have been that the scribal community of that day uh, were, uh, it was, well, it was a very male-dominated position, the scribes, those who made copies of manuscripts, and they probably didn't think too highly of a story that, that espoused a, a heroine instead of a, of a male figure. It could be, too, that they didn't like a story that ultimately led to a lot of uh, integration with the Gentile king. And so it could be that, that Esther was excluded for those reasons, but we can't be sure. Here's another interesting part about Esther. It is the only book that does not mention the Lord. The only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Not once is God mentioned or the Lord's name mentioned. For that matter, not once is the law of Israel mentioned, the law of Moses. Not once is uh, <clears throat> the concept of covenant mentioned. Themes that are just extremely important in almost every single Old Testament book. So these are, these are unusual, unusual omissions. And if you're taking notes on your outline, you can notate these. There is, of course, um, a passing reference to fasting, uh, but little is there to suggest any deep religious piety of the community of the Jews who were living in Persia at this time. In fact, so scant uh, is any mention of, of, of pious Jewish religious experience in the book of Esther that Martin Luther, the early uh, Protestant reformer, said this about the book. He said, I'm so hostile to this book, he was referring to 2 Maccabees, and to Esther, that I could wish they did not exist at all. For they Judaize too greatly and have much pagan impropriety. The word Judaize means, you know, he he at the time as he was using that term meant that they they really go along with just kind of the, the secular Jewish culture of the day and don't emphasize the legalistic culture of the day and don't emphasize the the grace that Jesus Christ came to bring. And so Martin Luther, great Protestant reformation there, didn't want Esther in your Bible. Makes you think a little bit. Nevertheless, it made it into our Bibles. It barely made it into our Bibles. Uh, At the Council of uh, Jambria in 90 AD or so, there's not a lot of uh, history on that in terms of precisely how those proceedings went, but I'm sure that there was a lot of debate going back and forth. Well, we've talked about how devoid Esther is of references to God and religious practices. And what's interesting uh, about that too is that later, as scribes translated 
the Hebrew version of Esther into Greek, they were so focused on, boy, there's no mention of God, there's no mention of law, there's no mention of covenant. They were so focused on that that they actually, as they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, they actually made additions. There's no less than six major additions to the book of Esther that you can read in uh, some of the, really the apocryphal literature. And, and uh, Pastor Tom and I might draw out some of those passages, not, not for their inspired sake, but just for their, their cultural uh, sake in this, to show how uh, these, these scribes were concerned with kind of making Esther sound better than it actually was putting more references to God into it, putting more Jewish pious religious practice into it. But really, truth be told, it's, it's actually a very um, straightforward book. It doesn't have a lot of, well, what we would say in our terms, you know, Christianese language. It doesn't have a lot of religious jargon. Um, there's a, there's a real politic essence to this book. There's a real life essence to this book. And so sometimes if you are going through life and you sometimes kind of struggle to, to, uh, to think spiritually all the time, if you struggle to think about the Lord throughout your day, that if you sometimes feel guilty that, man, I, sometimes I just don't feel spiritual enough, well, Esther's a book for you too. Because Esther's a book where it's raw. And it's difficult to read at times. And some of the decisions made by the Jewish characters can be very difficult to interpret and to understand why they did what they did. A few more uh, facts about Esther. Let's continue. First, the author, unknown, possibly a man by the name of Mordecai who we'll meet later on in the book, or maybe someone highly familiar with Persian words, customs, and palace business. Whoever was the author, and I think Mordecai, Mordecai is probably the most likely uh, choice, but whoever was the author, this was likely a Jew who was very well acquainted with the Persian culture with the Persian people, and particularly with the proceedings of the palace. The date of the story, the story itself is circa 483 B.C., and if you were to place it in your Bibles chronologically, you would separate Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, chapter 6, chapter 7, and you'd put Esther right in the middle of it. So that's kind of interesting. In fact, I would encourage you to read the book, the books of uh, Daniel, which just preceded Esther, and of Ezra, and of Nehemiah, if you want to get some additional uh, historical and, and cultural context for where we are in human history. Finally, last point there, likely written within a generation. So it was very likely written within a generation. The reason for this is there are no, uh, in the original manuscripts of the Masoretic text that we have to date, there were no Greek words in uh, the composition of Esther. And that tells us that this book was composed prior to the coming of Alexander the Great. And so uh, this, this book was likely written very soon after the story unfolded. Why was Esther written? Why was Esther written? Well, I want to give you two reasons for this. The first reason I want to give you is what I think is more of the author's intent. And then the second reason I want to give you is what I think is more of the Lord's intent in putting it into our Bibles today. But first, why was the author writing 
this book. I think he was writing it for this reason. One, to establish the historical events that led to the creation of the Jewish feast of Purim, which we will meet, which we will learn about in chapter nine. So write down that word Purim in your, in your outline there. You're going to see that very prominently at the end of this book. And there's a reason why the author is going to spend so much time leading up to that feast. And so I think that was the author's primary intention as he was cataloging and chronicling this story. But then there's God's intent. Why, did, why, would the, why does the Lord include this as well for us? And I think it's for this reason. To demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness with Israel, irrespective of their piety, regardless of their piety. This is a book in which God's people don't look very faithful. They don't look very religious. They don't look like Jews who were devoutly following the Lord. And yet, through it all, in this book, God shows how faithful he is to his people, irrespective of their piety. Last uh, point of background material, and then I want to show you a few things, uh, show you a few images the last bit of background material here is the, the genre of literature, and this is very important. The genre of literature that we're reading in this, in this book is Old Testament historical narrative. And when I, when I say this is important, it's because when you read different genres of literature, you need to know how to approach the literature, how to, how to read it, so that you can interpret it properly. We don't read historical narrative like we read the Gospels. We don't read historical narrative like we read the letters of Paul and of Peter in the New Testament. Especially the epistles, the letters, they're very prescriptive. They tell us what to do. But the Old Testament historical narratives and books in that category, they are not so much prescriptive, they are descriptive. So I want to bring up this point here. Old Testament historical narrative describes what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. I'll say that again. Old Testament historical narrative describes what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. And so books like, uh, you know, Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Judges before them, and Joshua, these are books that describe what happened. But as you read them, you shouldn't be under the perception that just because it happened this way, that somehow God was pleased that it happened in that way. Or just because characters like Mordecai and Esther act in certain ways, we shouldn't automatically assume that therefore God was condoning their actions. In fact, in some cases, we might argue, as, we, as this sermon series unfolds, that the ways in which they acted were sometimes uh, perhaps not in keeping with what the Lord might have had them do. So note, notate that in your mind as you read this. Not prescriptive, descriptive. Well, how about some images? I think this is helpful too. Where are we in the world? Take a look at this. I've got a neat little map here. Here is the Middle East, uh, the 1040 window, if you will, at the end uh, at the at the onset, really, of the sixth century, so right around 585, 580 BC, these were the players on stage. Right, we had in the middle around 580 BC, and this is a hundred years prior to Esther. 
So I'm talking 100 years prior to Esther. In the middle there, in the big green, we had Babylon, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, major player on scene. Uh, a little bit to his north and to the, uh, to the east there is the Empire of Media. To the top left, Lydia. To the bottom left, Egypt. But in the middle, the main player uh, in the 6th century was the nation of Babylon. At its peak, under King Nebuchadnezzar, um, Babylon covered an enormous amount of territory. And they, like the Assyrians before them, they relished in taking newly conquered people and their sacred items back to the capital of Babylon. So they would displace people and move them. They would displace articles of the temple and move them. During this time, of course, Israel herself was taken captive to Babylon, some 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Not just to Babylon, but to other cities of the Far East. They were taken away. You can read about it if you want to notate this in your notes again. Second Chronicles 36. Take a look at that when you go home if you're interested. Second Chronicles 36 details some of the, the migration of the Jews, the exile, if you will, when they were enslaved to Babylon. But Babylon's cruelty would not last forever. Another world power would rise up. And it is actually indicated right there by the little yellow arrow. Now in 580 BC, the empire of Persia was hardly an empire. In fact, it was a little blip on the screen. Just above the Persian Gulf there, it was a small uh, vassal state of the Median Empire. But friends, within a very short amount of time, from about the height of the Babylonian Empire in about 585, fast forward not even 45 years to 539, when King Cyrus of Persia swept through the Middle East, and this is what happened to these territories. All of that is Persia. That was in a span of 45 years. King Cyrus of Persia swept westward and swept to the north and absolutely absorbed every single kingdom in his wake. Persia was an enormous, enormous empire. Cyrus the Great rose out of Persia, conquering Media in 550, Babylon in 539. His successors, Cambyses, and his father, uh, and Darius the Great, continued expanding the Persian Empire to its peak about 485 BC. So it, it kept growing and growing and growing uh, for the next oh, 65 years or so. Here's another uh, image, a little more a clearer image of their territory, a little bit more zoomed in image. So you can see there some of the lands that they went through, just above the Persian Gulf, uh, Persepolis, uh, in around the capital there. He swept northward, he swept westward, all the way to Greece, as far down as, as Libya, down to Ethiopia, which you cannot see on the screen, as far east as the Indus River of India. This span of territory covered some three million square miles. It ruled over 50 million people, which in that day accounted for 44% of the world's population. Friends, that is higher than any other world empire in human history. We hear about a lot of different empires. No empire has ruled 
more people per capita, 44% of the world's population was under the subjugation of the Persian king. But the Persians were different than the Babylonians. Unlike the Babylonians' ruthless tactics of displacing people from their homelands, the Babylonians came and they took them away, took them away, took their artifacts with them. But Cyrus and the Persian kings were notorious for doing just the opposite. After they had conquered their different peoples, they would actually allow them to return to their native homelands, to return with their sacred objects of worship. And in the case of the Jews, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would do that very thing for the Jewish people. And sure enough, in 539 BC, after conquering Babylon, Cyrus looked upon the Isaiah scroll. He looked upon the prophecy about him and at the latter part of chapter 44 and, and start of 45 of Isaiah. He looked upon that prophecy and said, I'm going to fulfill that now. And he let the Jews go back to their native homeland. He let them go back with articles for the temple. By and large, Israel found favor during the reign of Cyrus and the Persian kings. Some even served as advisors to the king, including Daniel and Nehemiah. Ezra the priest was also friend of Artaxerxes, the Persian king of his day. In fact, those wishing to get, you know, again, I'll reiterate, those wishing to get more background should read Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah so they can see the relationship that many of the Jews had with these Persian kings. Well, one final map to get our modern day bearings. Here's where we are in modern day, right? These are the countries in question that we're looking at today. Of course, right in the middle of there, the, the, the Persian Empire now is represented by the nation of Iran. Can you see why I wanted to preach on Esther a little bit? That's a little bit in the news, right? Iran uh, is here and there, sometimes in the news. Uh, also, you know, Iraq, Syria. I mean, these are major players here, friends. Um, Names have changed. The territories and the peoples within those areas really have not changed much. And that red dot, that red dot, that red dot represents the city, the setting that we are in, in this wonderful book of Esther. The red arrow in southwestern Iran represents the modern city of Shush, which is the ancient city of Susa, or Shushan, the same city we read about in the opening verses of the book of Esther. Let's read it again. Esther 1, 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. There it is, Shushan, represented by that red arrow that we saw on the previous page. Shushan was one of four Persian capitals. It was known as the winter capital of the Persian kings. The winter capital. Do not go there in summer. I actually have the modern-day uh, seven-day forecast for Shushan, if you'd like to see it. Don't go there in summer, all right? This is why the Persian kings only kept this place in the winter. Uh, it's getting as high as uh, 114 on Tuesday in Shush, Iran, which is just adjacent to the ancient city 
of Susa. Uh, sounds like uh, Palm Springs out there. That's, that's a little hot. That's a little hot. Uh, one scholar noted that uh, at midday in the summer, if a reptile uh, attempted to cross the road in Susa, the lizard would literally burn to death on the road. That is not an exaggeration. Shushan the citadel. In Hebrew, the term citadel there is barah, meaning castle or palace or acropolis. And then going back again to the previous slide there, Joyce, for just a second. And then we come to the name Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, the king in 483 B.C. Who was this king? Well, uh, Bible scholars are almost unanimously agreed that Ahasuerus uh, was a term used to describe the king that you and I now know as Xerxes. And why do we now know him as Xerxes? Well, because the Persians didn't win. <laughs> the Greeks came through after the Persians. And the Greeks, uh, Ahasuerus, his, uh, he also had a Persian name, he had a Hebrew name, and then the Greeks came and uh, also used their term to, uh, to name him. So we know him now today by the name the King Xerxes. Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465 BC. He was the fourth Persian king after Cyrus who sent the Jews back to Jerusalem also after his uh, uh, after Cambyses his father Darius the Great any uh, action movie fans out there raise your hands okay a few of you Xerxes is also the same Persian king who is uh, quite uniquely depicted in the, the 300 movies. There are two of them which weave tales of the Persian wars with Greece. Wars which Xerxes ultimately lost. And it began the demise of the Persian Empire. The first, I've only seen uh, one of those uh, films. They're, they're quite artistic and they take great license. But nevertheless, uh, they, they give you an idea of just how massive the army was of Persia. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian, says that the Persian Empire, when they went to meet Greece at Thermopylae, he says they were 2.5 million men strong. 2.5 million in the army of Xerxes. And they lost the battle. They lost to Greece. They won at Thermopylae, lost later on. Third year of his reign, it says, right? Third year of his reign, it indicates in the, in the very next verse, as a matter of fact. And he, he goes on to talk about a special feast that is taking place. Let's move ahead to verse 3. That in the third year of Xerxes' reign, or Ahasuerus' reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the glories uh, showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. 180 days. Now this feast, this uh, maybe feast number one we might term it, this feast was thrown for all of the, the nobles, right? All of the officials, the representatives. When it indicates servants there, it's probably you know servants of the king, uh, the representatives of the king. So all of the officials, all the servants had gathered, and they had probably come in successive waves. It's not that the party, not that people stayed for 180 days. It was that it was an open house, if you will. 
at Shushan, the citadel, the palace, the Acropolis. It was open house for 180 days. And various provincial officials and noblemen would come through and would behold the beautiful riches of King Xerxes. Xerxes was an insatiable man. Insatiable Xerxes, the first part of this message title. He had an unquenchable, unquenchable desire for riches, for victory in wars, as we will soon see, for women. Xerxes was an insatiable man. Continuing on in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made another feast, lasting seven days, this time for all of the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods, marble pillars. The couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white, and black marble. One scholar has said this is the most colorful verse in all of scripture. An incredible display of color and of majesty. This is the second feast, we might term it. A seven-day feast, not the open house for the noblemen, but a seven-day feast for the people of Susa, of Shushan. And in this feast, from small to great, all were participants. The decorations were bar none. They were the greatest decorations you can imagine, much like Leela Hinckley's decorations at the Thanksgiving feast every year. Mind-blowing, amazing, We all walk in and just, ah, everything's right, you know? Um, It was an incredible feast for the people this time. But again, demonstrating his insatiable appetite for feasting, for festivities, for decor, for his riches. Verse 7, and they drank. They served drinks. In golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. The Persians particularly were known for their uh, drinking. That was, that was the, the highlight of, uh, of their feasts, of their festivities. They were well known for uh, drinking to excess, drinking significant amounts of wine. Each golden cup different from the other. Imagine, again, just how much the cost would be for such things as this. We go to Ikea and we get a vat of 20 cups, you know, or 10 cups. Each one for thousands upon thousands of people, uniquely crafted. Royal wine in abundance, crafted of gold, by the way. Royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Now take note of that. The generosity of the king, verse 7. Tell me, how does the author characterize Ahasuerus when you read a clause like that? You, know, he, you can tell as you read the end of verse 7 that whoever this author is, he is very sympathetic to the character of Ahasuerus. He is very sympathetic to the person of Xerxes, the king of Persia. 
And that's a unique uh, phenomenon in this book. It's just how often the king is looked upon with sympathy, um, given the benefit of the doubt. And it gets really interesting when the king continues uh, to live in ways that would very much, uh, well, be in opposition to what faithful Jews would normally consider what a king should do. But nevertheless, this author shows great sympathy to this king. Great deference, great respect. Finally, verse 8, In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. What that probably hints at, and and this is also maybe detailed in Herodotus and some of the other historians of the day, is uh, in Persia, the custom was, whenever the king raised his glass, all of the subjects raise their glass. It was, uh, it was protocol. It was custom. And so whenever the king would raise his glass to drink, everyone had to raise their glass to drink. And of course, uh, it, you can see where that went. But here in verse 8, there's an indication that King Xerxes was, uh, um, well, more generous to the people, more, um, def- uh, showed more deference to the people. He allowed them to drink on their own. They, they didn't have to wait for him to raise his glass, nor were they mandated to drink when he raised his. And so he allowed them a measure of freedom. Again, just a slight indication of the author's sympathy for the king. And also of the, uh, maybe the Persian kings, uh, how they treated their subjects maybe a little bit better than those of Babylon. Verse 9. Here we meet a new character. Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Here we have an introduction of a brand new character. We're, we're reading the book of Esther. We haven't got to her yet, and we won't actually for another two weeks. But first we're meeting some, some different characters. We've met King Ahasuerus, um, and now we, we come to Queen Vashti, his wife. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women during this seven-day feast in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Maybe a a separation there then, Persian customs, the men and the women in in different locales. Queen Vashti, it should be noted, is not mentioned in any other uh, place in historical writings except the scripture. Um, But that's not altogether surprising because the Persians were notorious for not um, mentioning their queens by name. In fact, only one queen, to my knowledge, maybe Pastor Tom can dig up more. He's, he's a better researcher than I. But only one queen, to my knowledge, Queen Artemis, was mentioned by name in all the annals of the kings of Persia and Media. And so it's not often that queens were mentioned by name. We, we shouldn't think of Queen Vashti like we think of uh, queens in, com- in, in, in maybe in our common uh, ideas. Sometimes we think of a queen as having uh, great power, as being right there with the king on the throne uh, with, with authority, with the ability to rule. In some cases, the queen is the, the, the ruler or the leader of the land. Not so among the Persians. In Persia, the Persian Empire, the queen was a, was a figurehead, but held very little power, very little authority. And thus, they were not mentioned often by name in the history books. Nevertheless, Queen Vashti 
married to the king, throws her own party. Come to verse 10. On the seventh day, this is the last day of the second feast. You see the play unfolding. You see the drama unfolding. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abacatha, Zethar, and Carcass. You guys want to repeat those with me? Ready? Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, he commanded them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. A few things. Very fascinating couple of verses there. A few things. Number one, uh, eunuchs. I was going to have Pastor Tom explain this one. Uh, no. <laughs> What, what is a eunuch? Well, quite plainly, a eunuch is someone who has uh, had some things removed on their body. Now, you might be wondering, why would these men uh, do this? Why would they do this? Did they do this voluntarily? <laughs> Did they do this, um, or in some cases, it was also uh, a defect of, of their birth, but in, in, in the readings here, we should most likely look at it as a situation where these men uh, voluntarily uh, mutilated their bodies uh, for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, the kings of Persia, and really the kings of Babylon before them, they were always looking behind their back. They were always getting killed by family, by friends. They were always, there was always uh, intrigue behind the scenes. There was always sedition. There was always treason. There was always someone who was right behind them waiting to pounce and to grab power. And so one of the things, one of the tools in their arsenal to demonstrate the men in their administration, to demonstrate and to ask those men, are you for me or against me, that, that the kings, ancient kings, would actually make the, the administrators, many of them, in their uh, office, they would, they would make them eunuchs so that the king could trust them so that the king could know that these were men who were willing to, to do anything for his sake, who would not go behind his back, but nevertheless demonstrated incredible loyalty to the king. And so these are seven men, seven individuals, who King Ahasuerus would have looked upon and said, these are very trustworthy men who I can trust with all things. And so he looks upon these men on the final day of the feast and his heart was merry with wine, right? We see that in verse 10. He, he had been drinking quite a bit that Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he issued a command to the eunuchs to take to Vashti to bring her before him with her royal crown. Insatiable, unquenchable, drinking, feasting, now he wants his wife to come down and, and parade her before all the guests. Well, before we move on, a word about that command. As you might expect, the word of the king was final. In fact, so powerful were the edicts of Persian kings that they were considered to be irrevocable. Once the king had issued an order, once the king had issued a command, it was to be done. And it could not 
be undone, not even by the king himself. And so once he issued that command, it went forth and it was expected to be obeyed. We come to verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Uh Uh-oh. This is not good. This is not good. The queen refuses to obey. Now, why would she do this? Why would she do this? Well, a number of reasons have been given, right? Number one, uh, she's got another feast to attend to. Remember? In the previous verses, it said that she was throwing her own party, throwing her own feast. And, uh, you know, you, you can't take a, a, a woman away from her party. And so Queen Vashti might have, you know, thought in her mind, I have other things to attend to. Another, uh, another option is, and this is from ancient Jewish scholars in some of their targums and some of their um, uh, interpretations, uh, earlier interpretations of Esther, they speculated, these Jewish scholars, that Xerxes or Ahasuerus was actually commanding her, Vashti, to appear with her royal crown and only her royal crown. So perhaps Vashti said no out of a desire not to expose herself to her, her inebriated husband and his guests. That, is a, that was significant viewpoint among ancient Jewish scholars who read Esther. That's, that, that was their reading of it. And you can see, read that in the Targums, ancient interpretation of, of Esther among the Jews. So they said Queen Vashti was to wear her crown and only her crown. And that's why she was so opposed to walking into his throne room. But I want to say that the text does not require that, does not require such a reading. In fact, it's probably not the case that Xerxes commanded her to appear in that way. In fact, uh, still, still though, it is likely that Vashti refused to come for reasons of her own dignity and modesty. She didn't want to be paraded. She didn't want to be gawked at by her inebriated husband and by all of his male friends. And that, that just a, a small point to the ladies today. What choice would you have made if you were Vashti? Put aside the consequences for a moment, the potential consequences from the king. Ask yourself, when you find yourself in the presence of men, do you seek to show modesty? Or do you dress and speak and act in ways that draw the attention of foolish men? Do you secretly relish the gaze of men, even those who are not your husband? And if so, where does that come from? What past or what present hurts do those gazes soothe? I want to say clearly, ladies, that it's a lie from the enemy that your worth is bound up in your ability to draw the attention of a man. It is not. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, he says, your worth, women, your worth comes from the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. And to the men, husbands and men, we need to do a better job of cherishing our wives and the women of this church so that they don't ever feel the need to strain for our attention and our respect. 
Vashti, Vashti in verse 12, refused to come for reasons of her own dignity and modesty. And for that reason, one scholar has gone so far as to suggest that Vashti is the most moral character in the book of Esther. She didn't want to be paraded. She didn't want to be gawked at. She wanted to retain her self-respect, and so she said, no, I'm not coming. She refused to obey. Now, she did so with full knowledge of certain penalty, possibly even death. And while Vashti is given the title queen, we should again make clear that in ancient Persia, she had no power. She had no authority. She had no capacity to rule or to control what happened next. If she were playing cards, if she were at the card table, you might say she has nothing in her hand. She has no cards to play, but apparently she was determined not to lose her dignity. And so in a manner of speaking, Queen Vashti did what anyone does when they have no power, they have no strength, but they're determined to retain their honor. She bluffed. She said, no, I'm not going to come. I'm not going to appear before you. I'm not going to obey. She bluffed. And then she waited, holding her breath to see how the king would play his hand. Would he back down at her unusual showing of strength and poise? Or would he call her bluff and respond to her with the inherent strength of his hand? with the inherent strength of his office, of his throne, and wield his power against her. The last clause of verse 12 gives us a hint of the answer. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Proverbs 19.12, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion. And with that, we will pause our study in Esther. I'll leave, let, let the cliffhanger begin. And there are going to be many other cliffhangers ahead for us, friends. Yes, you're going to read ahead because you want to know the end of it. I know. But nevertheless, each week, pretend like you haven't and hold it in suspense because I'll tell you, friends, this reads like a novel, like a romance, like a mystery it has politics, it has power, it has so many things. It's going to intrigue all of us and draw us in. And while there may not be many lessons here today, there will be some incredible lessons going forward in this special series. Pray with me as we close our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we want to engage in this book. We thank you for a book that is so unique, has appeal in so many different ways um, to all people uh, of, different, uh, of different stripes, Lord. 
I pray that it would grab our attention. But more than that, God, that it wouldn't, not just for our interest or for our intrigue, but that it would grab our hearts and our minds and, we would re- and that we would read it to learn from it and to grow and to get stronger in our faith. We thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.